Hello. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Do you hear me? You're muted, I see. Hello. Hello, Maria, my dear. Hello, Chris. I've just turned on the video. You look like you've been electrocuted. <laughs> That's my sea hair. <laughs> sea hair? It's terrifying. Yeah. Chris Muldoon, you are now unmuted and can't be heard from. That's strange. Has Chris switched to active speaker on ah, his left-hand side? Give me two minutes. I'll log in on a different laptop. Thank you very much, Chris. Ah, it says Chris Muldoon is connecting to audio. That's right. Good. Now, when Chris finally gets to us, should we just launch into him and then we can do an intro for him when he buzzes off? Yes, absolutely. Is that a good idea? Absolutes. Dolly, where's the little animal, Dolly? Where's it? Where's she gone? Dark pod. Bob, what's that noise? Bob, what's that? Where's Wolfers? Dark pod. Hello. Ready? Hello, Paddy. Hello, welcome to podcast number. Who knows? Yes, nobody knows. And what I keep saying every week is nobody cares. <laughs> uh, more importantly. And good news, Paddy, is that sort of, you know, our lockdown is, is locking up. I mean, it's, it's looking up. The lockdown lo is looking up. Yes, it's looking up for the lock up. Or looking yeah. down. <laughs> Basically, we can all meet one other person from somebody else's family. And further than that, I can't really decipher it. Well, you can go into the garden of a friend. You can have a picnic with a friend. Yes. And uh, obviously, to you listening outside the UK, the rules are very different. You may have been going forward or backwards. Around the UK, it's different as well. And in the middle, we're going to be confusing our dogs. And that's the purpose. So it's why we've come together today is because we've met this amazing man. He's from... Dogs for Good. Dogs for Good. His name is Chris Muldoon, who's worked with guide dogs for 40 years. He works for charity and he's trying to tell us about how to get through the different stages of lifting lockdown with your dog. Now, Chris, I'm going to launch straight in here because I think Paddy would like to know this too. How you know about all things dog? Um, well, I've been doing this job for 30 years, essentially. I started off life as a guide dog instructor. And I had uh, some very good educators. I've been trained in Australia. So I came back to the UK on a couple of occasions to work for guide dogs. And I've been working for dogs for good for the past four months as the operation manager, coming from a behaviorist background and coming from a breeding background. And have you ever come across a dog that you could not fathom, you couldn't work out? Are there such things as peculiar dogs? No, I think, I think the beautiful thing about dogs is they love to give you as much information as they possibly can about themselves. So all you have to do is be alert and keep your... Oh, I don't even Stay want to alert. Stay alert. Oh, don't you Stay trigger, alert. No, you'll trigger Stay Maria. You, you can't say that word. You have to say something else. You triggered her. <laughs> Uh, Don't say unprecedented either, please, Chris. <laughs> no, and, and I've never been to Castle Barnard. Um, <laughs> but, uh, all you have to do is, is to be observant and to take note and to take what you learn and apply it back to the dog and the dog will respond accordingly. Mm. So you are a dog behaviourist, really, in many respects. Well, I started off life as, as a child psychologist. So once I've worked out... <laughs> Children were smarter than me. I've started moving down the food chain. <laughs> <laughs> but given this career, which has taken you all over the world and introduced you to hundreds of dogs, do you own yeah. any? No, I don't. <laughs> no. Um, 
I've had dogs in my life. I grew up in a, in a little farm setting not far from here in Scotland. So I've seen working dogs. But um, I think what happens is that whenever there's a dog in the office that somebody wants me to have a look at, I usually end up with it as an extended guest for a period of time. Mm, oh, so you, you have it in situ to monitor its progress etc and see his behavior yeah so we have a sort of canine airbnb going on here at the moment <laughs> do you think i asked Caesar milan once if he thought that it was possible for a dog to be autistic interesting that's a good question and um, they are certainly subject to behavioral change that would be on the spectrum of behaviors whether it's a diagnostic tool that you can apply as you would it to a human, because it's a diagnostic tool, autism, the condition is secondary to it. You could argue that the behaviors manifest as a similar type of autism hmm. or a similar type of spectrum more than anything else. Yes. You looked yeah. at me as though I was mad, by the way, Caesar Milan. <laughs> <laughs> Dark pot. Dolly, where's Bob? Let me ask lockdown. This is why we're meeting you. And it seems to me that you'll probably be requested by us regular and turn us down. <laughs> but not at all. Not at all. Now with lockdown, what kind of, you're not allowed to say unprecedented, what kind of challenge does this pose? And what kind of boost has it been to dogs? Well, I think it's been a, the sword of Damocles for dogs, quite honestly, because there will be dogs out there who have loved the experience of having their handlers and their humans around for a protracted period of time. And there will be dogs that will be handing you the car keys on Monday to get you out of the house. <laughs> so, um, so, so for that range of dog, some of these dogs will have difficulties with you leaving to go back to work. And that's sort of in the loose terms of separation anxiety. And some of these dogs will be more confident because there's less controls put on them, you know, because you're not around and they can get away with a bit more. So, so they can sleep uh, all day. Well, this is usually what happens is that dogs adjust very quickly. They're, they're a creature of routine and they, they like that routine to be uninterrupted. So if you can set the precedence for them where they can just do what they want to do, they will do it. And the thing about lockdown is it's been quite an interesting development. I was going to say unprecedented, but it's good. Oh, no trigger, Maria. Press. Yeah. Press. From the point of view of humans, you know, humans have been in dire need of support and interaction during lockdown period. So I often think that probably what's happened is that the time that would normally be spent in peaceful cohabitation in the house has been much more interactive because the human has needed that interaction. Booby, yes, booby, very booby. Much so. Here's your yeah. little squeaky woof woof booby booby. Come over here. Look at you. You have a nice brush. Yes. Look at you. Want some more food? Come over here. Come and give me a cuddle. Mummy needs you. Come over you. here. You're missing yeah, me. Mummy needs you. That's the Mummy's sad. Mummy's yeah. sad. I need you. Yes. And I can feel my dog sometimes going, get off. Get off me. <laughs> it's interesting. A long time ago, when I was just a, a young whippersnapper of a guide dog instructor, we had some conversations about whether guide dogs and assistance dogs benefited from the work that they were doing and the counter argument to it which we said is that the family pet really only gets about 14 or 15 minutes worth of interaction a day at the best of times i, I plead exemption to your relationship with your dog but, <laughs> but in some in most cases that that 15 minutes is probably spent with seven or eight minutes of you wanting to interact come and give daddy a cuddle come and mm. 
And the other seven or eight minutes is when the dog is doing something that's irritating you. Get off the couch, get off the, you know. So for the assistance dog in the world, that interaction is constant. Thank you very much for getting my shoes off. Thank you very much for taking me safely across the road. So that interaction is much more pronounced and much more, yes. uh, much more rewarding for the dog. So, so, so what are we going to do then, Chris, to actually ease them back into the real world without them tearing up the furniture or chewing our best Italian shoes? Yeah, well... <laughs> um, Chris, just as a sidebar, I, I don't think Chris owns a pair of handmade Italian shoes. Just no. looking at Why his do you bookcase. say that? But look at no. his bookcase. He likes the rustic look. Yes, I like dogs, <laughs> and, I like dogs and Scotland. Those are the two... Yeah, things. Um so uh, in terms of protecting your thing, uh, the first thing is don't feed the dog your Italian shoes by leaving them out. Um, yeah, uh, that I seems often, easy, doesn't it, really? Uh, well, I often get confused by people say, oh, the dog ate my shoes. No, the dog was allowed to eat your shoes. That's the difference in the sentence. But for, in terms of separation anxiety, it's once again, it's establishing routines for these dogs. If you are, for example, know that you're going to be leaving lockdown on the 8th of June, then round about the 2nd or 3rd of June, I would start the behaviours that are leading up to that coming out of lockdown. Picking up your keys and holding them for a couple of minutes, putting them back down. Picking up your keys, holding them, putting them back down. Picking up your keys, going to the front door, opening the front door, putting them. So just setting the precedence that the dog is aware that the things will be changing Yes, but picking up your keys at the moment is like, yay, another walk, only my 14th today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's the key to it, is that if you're going to pick up your keys, create another series of uh, events that would be different from just going for a walk. And, and this might sound quite silly, but put on your work jacket or put on a tie or, or pick up your briefcase if you're going out to work. Something that associates it, not the leash. Because yep. as soon as you pick up the lead, that's another message altogether. But if you pick up other things that are related to this is mum and dad going out to work, then the dog will start relating to. And the dog is very good at picking up facial expressions, too. So you can put on your happiest face to go to work. I also think that for anyone who leaves a dog at home, including myself, there's a much better outcome if the routine has gone something along the lines of wake up, walk, get a little bit tired, eat. That's the dog I'm talking about. Yeah. The dog will sleep when you leave the house. Then you come back, as, hopefully not two days later, hopefully a permissible number of hours later. Hello, dog. Nice to see you're alive. Do you want to come outside with me right now? I mean, exercise, which has been a big boon to lockdown, must not be forsaken when the lockdown lifts. You must be more strict with yourself, I wonder, Chris, to get that exercise in. Yeah, I've, I've been telling people if you're a responsible dog owner before lockdown, you should really be a much more responsible dog owner after lockdown because you, you're, you're certainly right, Paddy. Exercise is a key element in the dog's life. The opportunity to explore new environments is, is key to the dog's development too. And I think what we need to be careful of is, is as you head out into the broader world, this is potentially a dog that's had quite a limited exposure to that world for the past nine or 10 weeks. So things like going to the dog park, I wouldn't be going straight to the dog park and letting the dog off lead and just, there you go, we're back in the world that we had before. For some dogs with separation anxiety, particularly, or other levels of behavioral anxieties, that time spent readjusting to the world is just as important to the world that we'll need to readjust to. So, so do be a bit more diligent in looking out for behavioural changes in the dog. Yes. Chris, can I ask you, as you have trained many, many dogs, and yes. you know, specifically guide dogs, 
out of a toy poodle and a border terrier, mm-hmm. which one is easiest to train? <laughs> Guess hello, which one hello. I have. I think, I think my Zoom meeting has, um, hello? <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. You need to define the word train and we need to work out who's training who. And then I can give you an answer. Um, oh, very, very diplomatic there. If, if we're talking about uh, intelligence levels, then the poodle is theoretically the smarter dog. Yes, uh, and theoretically. But, but I, I put the caveat on that. that she can't uh, spell it, the dog. Neither can the A. <laughs> but the standard, C-A-V-E-A-T. The, standard, the standard poodle is a very smart dog. I have a serious concern that if you shrink the dog, you might also shrink the brain as well. <laughs> Oh, yes. Brain the size of a walnut. Okay, well, that's me told. Now, will you tell us a little bit about Dogs for Good? Because I, it really is what it says on the label. It is Dogs for Goodness, really. They are an amazing charity. Uh, I'm so pleased I've landed my employment with them. They provide a number of services to a number of ranges of clients, children with autism, people with dementia, people with physical disabilities, We run family workshops for people that have got their own dog and they need support through that. I I just think for a relatively small organization, our reach is incredible. And I've been so impressed with the passion of the organization in terms of meeting client need. It's very refreshing to come from organizations that are quite big to a medium-sized organization and see that real commitment about meeting the the needs of the dogs and the client. There's very rarely a conversation in Dogs for Good in the hallowed halls of Dogs for Good that doesn't revolve around some element of understanding behavior of the dog or trying to get their head around client need. And how are you generally, are you funded? Is it, you know, donations only? Yeah, it's pretty much a charity in the true sense of the word. And of course, you know, in this period of time, charities have been deeply affected by the loss of income and funders. And we no doubt will be coming back to the same scenario. Do you give people dogs? We do. We give people dogs, particularly the clients. We train them with that dog. So So it's a very much a relationship. And then we support the dog after they get that dog. So our children with autism and our people with disabilities and dementia dogs get continual support from the organization for as long as they want it and need it. So is this what uh, the lay person like me sometimes refers to as a therapy dog? uh, The language is probably a little bit different. Assistance dog is a dog that is trained to do primary tasks, usually three primary tasks. Therapy dogs and emotional support dogs are pretty much the other end of that spectrum where they have a clear focus on supporting you at an emotional level or a, or a or psychological level. But an assistance dog very much has a clear mandate of this is the job it has to do. Secondary to that, it also provides support and companionship and all of those other mm. roles. Dark pot. Oh, who's at the door? <coughs> oh, it's the doorbell, Bob. It's the doorbell. Tell me a little bit about working with dementia patients. So, so it's amazing how many people are involved in supporting a dog that works with somebody with dementia. The infrastructure you need to put around that is to protect both the dog and the client. And the primary result of that is the person with dementia is absolved of some of that responsibility of being the direct carer for the dog. So the right. dog actually gets to work more closely with the person on a one-to-one basis without a lot of the accessory work that has to go along behind the scenes. That doesn't mean to say the accessory work isn't done. It means that there's a team of people or a carer or, or a, somebody directly responsible for looking after the dog as well. 
Yes, it must be actually lovely for a dementia patient because, you know, constantly being confused and being told by your carer or others that you're wrong, that, you know, your father died 40 years ago when you think he's just upstairs, when all a dog will see is somebody who will pet it and love it. And the dementia patient sees a little thing, creature that just needs love and won't judge and make them feel angry or confused. You're so right, Maria. It's those core relationships that we have with animals that are integral to our well-being. If you have a physical disability or if you're a child with autism or a person with dementia, sometimes you're so overwhelmed by the world around you and the other things, that purely kinetic relationship of having the relationship with the dog at a tactile level is what will center you and ground you so that you can cope with the other elements of the world. And I read somewhere, uh, I meant to introduce this before, Maria and I have been starting this hit podcast for the one listener, that crucially, dogs and humans evolved together over the course of something like 50,000 years, I've seen it written, that that these are domestic animals, they are different from a cow, which is, uh, has a bigger brain, has a soul, obviously, an animal spirit, but is not domesticated to sit at the end of the foot of the owner or to do things, to lick it, to get stroked. So I'm feeling to myself that this lockdown has reminded the dog and the human of a sort of coexistence. A symbiosis would be the word I'd be reaching for if I knew what it meant, Chris. <laughs> I think that was right. a long-winded question, but no, there I we think, are. Chris, your turn. <laughs> I, I, think you, I think you're terribly right, Paddy, because um, the relationship is codependent. And that codependency is historical. The original dogs were probably wolves. And the first people who found a wolf wouldn't have found an adult wolf because it would have eaten them. Um, <laughs> but they might have found a wolf pup and brought it back for the kids to play with. Here's something, you know. If you haven't got your prehistoric iPad, here's something that will keep you busy. And that wolf pup would have grown up interacting with the other members of the tribe or under members of the family, and it would have been fed by offcuts from the rest of the family. So the wolf would have very quickly learned, if I play my cards right here and I don't eat the kids, the potential is I'm on a meal ticket for life. And then as other animals became domesticated in that tribal relationship, the dog's classic job would have been as an alarm because it barks when things are coming that could potentially be a threat. So, What if there are other wolves, though, that he, and then it confuses them and goes, wait, but wait, I used to live with those people, and now I live with these people. I'm torn, my loyalty. Who gives me more food? I don't know. I'm a bit more Scottish than that. I just look at which side my bread's buttered on. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and that relationship would have meant that if the wolf was mated to another puppy they would have found, you've got the first fledgling moments of domestication. And you're right, you know, as you say that these relationships evolve, the dog has evolved in terms of breed and in terms of standard size and in terms of interaction. And we now have these real specifics of dogs that are bred to do, like your poodle, for example, Maria, that are bred totally to interact with people. Mm. And yeah. this takes us full circle to the, where we met you, what must seem to you like four hours ago now. <laughs> and you said, when Maria was shouting at you, that dogs are trying desperately to send information. So here I go to the most optimistic part of trying to lift lockdown with my dog, is that read the signals. The dog can be on its own. It it just needs to be routinized. It's not cruelty. It's routine. Try and get out of the mindset of thinking a dog is only happy unless if it's squeaking its squeaker and woofing its woofer. And I want the owner to feel, after listening to you, confident 
that a sleeping dog can be let to lie. You must be confident as its mate and get over yourself. Get over yourself, yeah. In Glasgow terms, it would be behave yourself. The other optimal factor is, is dogs are probably coming into lockdown at very, like I'm, I'm always a bit worried about nine week old puppies that have just come out of the breeding network of their families and straight into lockdown. And mm. now we're talking about an 18 week old puppy that's probably had minimal socialization and minimal experience of the world. Those are the dogs that are going to take a lot more nurturing to get them over the next few weeks. And, and, and whilst I agree with you, leaving them to learn a bit more about the world that they live in is going to be a good thing. Exposing them gradually to that new world is going to be a great thing mm. for them too, because you don't want them being flooded with information on their first few weeks post lockdown, because that can create anxieties in itself. So we walk a very fine line in the relationship and the responsibility we have to other living creatures. So Chris, if this hasn't been too traumatic for you, maybe you'll return you know, in another few months. Be more than happy to, more than happy to. Hooray, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for thank changing. Thank you very to... much, Chris. Lovely to meet you. You too, take great care, bye-bye. I could see you really enjoyed that. I, I could hear you really enjoyed that. Uh, yes, I did enjoy that. And I especially liked him telling me that poodles are more intelligent than border terriers. <laughs> well, he said that standard Competitive poodles Competitive dog owning. He said standard poodles were, but when you shrink the dog down, I mean, standard poodles the size of a Shetland pony. And when you shrink that down to dollies the size of a mouse, I mean, where's the, what's happened to the brain? <laughs> She's been gifted the brain of a standard poodle, which is why her head is slightly larger than the rest of her. <laughs> I thought Chris was absolutely devoted. I was fascinated that he doesn't have a dog. I just think, you know, I suppose it's, it's just... Because if you work with them all the time, it's a bit of a busman's holiday. And as yeah. he said, he often takes dogs home, you know, to, to assess their behaviour. I like to think of him following the dog around the house with a little notebook. <laughs> yeah. Taking notes on what it's doing and where it's weeing and so on. I mean, it's rude to talk about him when he's not here, but I hope he comes back. But it seems to me he's come into this path through child psychiatry, child behavior, and his interest is in the human. And there's the connection with us, because you and me have worked out that there is a great value to the human of a dog and vice versa. And he's seeing the dog as assisting the human. So to all our listeners who think we've got our perspective wrong and we're obsessed with dogs, this is a man who's obsessed with humans and he's obsessed with the role that dogs have with humans. So he's a yes, human... and the relationship. Yeah, really interesting. Maria, you're a marvellous and remarkable woman. Do you know, I think you have delighted me enough. I'm going to say farewell, Paddy. Bye-bye and do wash Speak your hair. Speak soon. <laughs> Bye.